The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 live, and at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can bring it up on your MP3s. This morning, I have two guests. Actually, I have three guests. I have two guests in the first segment of the show, uh, two doctors, Dr. Carrie Barron and Dr. Alton Barron, a husband and wife couple, and they are author of The Creativity Cure, a do-it-yourself prescription for happiness. My second guest is Pulitzer Prize winner Edward Humes, and his new book is Garbology, Our Dirty Life, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. But first, our two doctors this morning, Dr. Carrie Barron. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, psychoanalyst on the faculty of the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, and she has a private practice in New York City, uh, has won several academic awards and presented many original works on creativity and self-expression. Her husband, Dr. Alton Barron, is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon and is currently president of the New York Society for Surgery of the Hand. He has been a surgeon for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera for more than a decade. And uh, he's written for the New York Times. He's also been on the CBS early show and was listed annually since 2009 in the New York Times Magazine as one of the super docs. So both of them uh, have published this new book called The Creativity Cure, a do-it-yourself prescription for happiness. And we're going to be talking about that today, discussing the link between creativity and personal f- fulfillment. Welcome to the show, doctors. Thank you, Catherine. Thank nice you so much, here. Catherine. Good. How are you this morning? We're great. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And, of course, your topic, I think this is a topic that, you know, is, is sort of constantly discussed. It's a, it's a very... Um, a, a topic that we talk about almost every day, I think, at work and at home, and uh, personal fulfillment. And your book specifically deals with creativity and personal fulfillment. So how do those two connect? Now, I, I said, doc, Doctor, who should we start with? Start with Carrie. Okay, okay. start with Carrie. Sure. In creative action is very useful and for making you feel alive, vital, engaged, empowered. It really can elevate your mood or shift your mood when you allow yourself to get involved in a project. You don't have to be great at it. You don't, you don't have to be experienced. You don't have to be an artist. But if you just start to do something, sometimes things can change. And if you make it a habit, you really can instill creative action into your identity, and that can do a lot for your feeling about yourself and your world. Carrie, do you think that we don't do that? Is that something that Americans or we as a culture don't do? We're not, we don't try to be creative people, and we don't understand the, the connection between creativity and fulfillment? And if that's the case, what prevents us from being creative? Well, I think we are enormously creative people. I think our whole history is based on being a creative people, and I think that what's happened is technology has put us into a passive position because we can 
technology is great and we use it and we love it and it's a great way to communicate with people, but what happens is if, if you can do everything sitting on the Internet and sitting there and you can buy everything you need, you're deprived of the experience of making things, of uh, necessity as the mother of invention. So when you make things and you have to make things, there's a way in which you can really connect to a very excited part of yourself. And we're just trying to say that, you know, maybe take some time to get back to that because it's, it's really an anatomical um, destiny. It's really our, our we're, as human beings, we need to do that. And Alton can talk a little bit about that in terms of the hands. Yeah, I was just going to go to Alton. Alton, so tell us, because you, as a hand surgeon, and you're dealing with some of the most creative people in the world, uh, metropolitan, you know, people at yeah, the Metropolitan yeah. Opera. Uh, so when we talk about creativity, and I think this is part of the problem, perhaps, we think, well, if we have to be creative, do we have to, you know, be someone like, and you discuss in the book, uh, very famous people, Bruce Springsteen, or do we have to be someone who's at the Metropolitan Opera? I mean, I can't be a creative person, is what most people think, and so they don't even attempt to do it. Yes, and that, that is exactly right. We do not have to be. And, and there are so many forms of creativity that we can practice just in our lives and, and, and engage with in our lives. You can be very creative through uh, how you cook and tend to your family. You can be creative in your gardening. You can be creative in mending and repairing things at home. One, a caller in another show that we did called in and said, he was just exhilarated. He said, I was so happy to hear that. One of my, I'm, mo- my, I'm my happiest when something breaks in my home home and I get a chance to jury rig it or to repair it. He said, there's nothing more exhilarating to me. And that's a form of creativity because you have to creatively think about how to fix it, what you need to repair it. And also it's kind of tending dually uh, psychologically. But it's fundamentally there is good hard science to show that using your hands meaningfully makes you both smarter and elevates your mood. It has some of the same uh, biochemical effects in the brain as do antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents. Yeah, well, you mentioned, I think it was um, Carrie mentioned, she said, you know, sometimes technology keeps us from being creative. But, you know, as a social worker, as a therapist, uh, or as a counselor, I think that sometimes it's not just technology, but also it's just our inner fears. Our, we're, we're you know, terrified to take a risk, or we see it as a risk if we're going to be creative. And, and so, I mean, I think that plays into it as well. Yeah, definitely. I totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, we can be inhibited in a lot of ways that we're not aware of, and it's really that's another thing that we try to get people to do is if you just sort of understand yourself more, if you gain some insight, you understand those fears, and if you can clear them out of the way and let yourself listen to what goes on deep down inside you, then you really can discover a lot of ways of living that can be really good for you, including you being have creative. five steps to creativity. You just mentioned the first one, insight. Um, so you have to have some insight. And then the next step we move on to is movement. What does that mean? Yes, that's so important because to develop creative capacity, you must involve your body. Um, much of our creativity and happiness is based on our physicality. I mean, you have writing is about sound and and singing is about breath. Running really frees your mind, uh, allows that daydreaming component to set in. Walking, uh, walking uh, swimming is immersion. All of those are very physical, and they absolutely free your mind. Nature itself has been shown also to be a very natural way to tra- uh, change your brain chemistry. Uh, there, are, there were studies shown on children who, who actually uh, were, two groups were tested. One was one group were 
took a nature walk for five to ten minutes before taking a standardized test, and they consistently, uniformly did better on that test just by taking that, getting that brief exposure to nature. And that leads into the mind rest component, which helps if you've gained some insight and you are out in nature, then the mind rest component is so, and Carrie can talk about that. Right. So movement in nature is great, but if you can't get outside, that's okay. There are other ways to move. But mind rest is very important because, you know, I don't know if it's that we have a very strong work ethic in this country. Of course we do, and that's good. But sometimes we need to just hang out. Sometimes we need to be passive. Sometimes we need to just slow down, and it's really hard to give ourselves permission to do that. But actually a lot of great work can happen in the mind and in the self when you're, when you're sort of just taking a walk or you're daydreaming or you're floating, that can be very good for your mood, for your relaxation, and also for your intellect, for creativity, for solving problems. The mind well, rest. You have is to be very specific about that and not leave it up to being spontaneous. I know that's difficult for me to do. I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, I walk every day. I walk four miles a day, but I have a terrible habit of getting on my cell phone while I'm walking, and that would not be considered mind rest. I mean, I'm having the opportunity to do what you're talking about, walking and thinking and resting my mind, and I'm not doing it. That's correct. It is very important to unplug however briefly that Five you minutes. can do it. Five minutes is enough. Just yeah. unplug and do not let yourself look at your smartphone or your computer or your email or whatever. And that will, the feeling is liberating and it can really start this process in a very important way. And see, what, what another thing we hope is for people to, if you do it for five minutes and then you are curious about the impact that that's had on you, just do it for five minutes and see what happens. Are you, does it make you anxious? Do you feel bored? Do you feel like you're getting behind? It's very important because if you become aware, it's awareness because we are really just inundated and saturated with too much information and too much to do, and it really is backfiring. I want to ask you two, how do you do it? Because here you're both very successful business uh, professionals as well as physicians. You're involved in so many different kinds of very high-powered things. Each, I want to ask both of you separately, um, maybe start with Carrie, how do you do this on a daily basis in your own life? I walk. I, I walk. And when I walk, I think about what I'm going to blog or ideas, or I just, and I always have walked. Uh, you know, I grew up walking. And for me, that is just essential. And sometimes, you know, if I have to do it in a mall, I'll do it in a mall. You know, it, wherever I can do it, that, that's very important for me. So, Alton, how do you do it? Well, I do it in two ways. Uh, one would be a little paradoxical, but uh, one way is uh, running. I, I've always loved running, and I've run in the fields growing up and with my dog, and then now I still run. And that I do not, uh, my cell phone is turned off. I don't use headphones for music, even though many people do, and that's wonderful music can be. But I try to strip it away, and everything falls mm-hmm. away. All the exigencies of life and the concerns and so forth can fall away. And I just want to clarify, the reason walking works for me is it's undirected thinking. I do, what happens is when I say I think about what I'm going to write or I think about the blog, I don't, I don't sort of force the thinking. Things, I, I allow that walking to let things bubble up in my mind. It's very undirected thinking, and that's very relaxing for me. You're not sitting down and trying to focus and, and get your mind in focus. You're just kind of letting it happen. Yes. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. But it yeah. is important, and that's exactly right, because you touch on also uh, the other ways that we can get it in snippets is just sweeping out the garage, sweeping out the garage, a, a, a kind of repetitive, manual, relatively mindless task of doing something like that can be very, can be, can be a form of mind rest. Folding laundry, ironing, washing dishes, all those things. 
Yeah. I was thinking about doing laundry at 12 o'clock at night when I can't calm down, and I think that's a really good example. But now let's get into, you say you have to use your own two hands. Is this really necessary in the, as part of the five steps of the creativity cure? You have to use your hands? It is necessary fundamentally that we, that's, that is really what defines us as human beings. And all of those uh, physical components, we, we know, I mean, it was said, even uh, philosopher Anaxagoras said, the hand is the window to the mind. Absolutely, our hands are linked to our creativity and to our physicality and to our, to our productivity. And we, 75 years ago, our country was comprised of 87% of people were involved with making things, manufacturing things. Now, only 13% of us are actually making things. And we've lost that, and it's so fundamental to our core. It is not the same as just sitting at a keyboard and typing. That's necessary for many of us in our jobs, but it's not going to be, it's not really making something. But, and also, it can be something as simple as what you said, folding laundry. I mean, that in and of itself counts as using your own two hands. Absolutely, absolutely. And another important thing is we talk about making things, but we didn't talk about, and you, you mentioned inhibitions, but imperfections are fine. We don't have to be making, we don't have to be the next Leonardo. We can be making something and it can have flaws and it can be something we'd never show to anybody, but the process of making it, it's about the process of engaging your hands and doing that, and that is where the fulfillment comes, uh-huh. not necessarily in the end result. Well, what would you say about, and I always thought that my profession, what I do, being on the radio is creative, but here I'm not using my mind, I'm sitting down and I have headphones on. So how does that fit into the picture? Well, that's true. That, that's a, you know, that's really important. One is that, you know, if you're a therapist, you, you, you know, I know you understand this, the connection, the deep connection that you have to people, I think is, is in, in engaging with people is a creative action because it's your mind joining with their mind and making something happen. It's not concrete. It's not tangible. But it's, it's, it's an energy that's created. It, it's a communication that's created. It might be a shift in the other person because of what you shared together. That is creative. And voices. I mean, you know, I sang for a long time. You know, I'm very interested in voices. You know, how voices, one voice affects another voice and how people hear each other's voices. You know, all of that is creative. So that connection that you make with your callers and the people you interview is very important, and that's very different than what you can achieve on any social media because uh, unless you're, of course, uh, Skyping where you're looking at video. But if you are... If you're not hearing the emotion, the intonations, and making that ongoing connection and, and feeling, the, even if it's through a telephone line, the connectivity there, it's so critical. And there's a whole section on that that Carrie talks about in the book. In the book, yeah. And, and speaking of the book uh, specifically, uh, focusing on the book, what are real-life examples of people who haven't felt fulfilled, who are not doing well, and then they've been able to follow these five steps and, and become creative? Can you take us through... Uh, give us an example that uh, of that. Yes, yes. You know, I had somebody who who came in. I think it was the uh, second session that I saw her. She said, "I'm creative, but I can't create." And you know, it was such a striking um, phrase. She had this sense of frustration, this sense of her potential, the sense of what she was able to do. Um, so, but but not not doing it. So she ended up um, becoming creative in in a design sense. But, um, you know, and that made her feel a lot better because she was channeling those energies, that kind of, that amorphous kind of stringy feeling that you have when you're not focusing what is the energies inside you into something that can be very beautiful and useful for yourself and other people. 
I mean, I've had people pick up instruments and who feel so much better when they're playing a guitar. I've had people um, who, um, you know, started painting, you know, as they, when they did, they did it as a child, they gave it up because of a number of reasons and got back to it. There's a certain peace that comes from that. I think it's really important, and I think that why your book is so important, and I'm thinking specifically of the aging population of the baby boomers, Mm -hmm. and you get so many people as they get older and into their 60s and 70s, and they're they're not despondent necessarily, but depressed and unhappy and unfulfilled, and that if, you know, they follow this, you know, do-it-yourself prescription for happiness and really followed it, we'd have much, many less people who were so dissatisfied and even, and, and depressed um, and and I, I think it's going to really get worse unless people really. Did I lose you? Uh, no, we're, we're there. Here. We're there. Oh, okay. No. Yeah, I, I think it's really important for, particularly with the aging population. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, a, a good example of kind of this tying this all together, which you just said, case examples. We have our own family. We have ten-year-old twins, and we, we really believe in not over overstressing them and and trying to just be achievement oriented and they go and spend my parents or my dad's turning 90 in September but they go and spend a month each summer in Austin at the lake there and they what they will do is they will go out in the boat go along uh, find some driftwood on the bank bring it back go to his little shop and they'll sand it down they'll stain it they'll lacquer it they'll make a, a board for it it'll be an all day relatively slow project but the process of doing that they're together they're both getting fulfillment my dad is laughing at their little comments that they make teaching them these and they are so proud of these we have these now kind of all over our house because they made they made many of them right. but, but it's that process and it and it can it can be so fulfilling for any age how do you and you met okay you have 10 year old twins uh, you live in new york city that's in the summertime when they're with your dad but what about the rest of the 11 months of the year? How do you keep them from not becoming overstimulated? Because I think this is a huge problem today with kids no, and, it, and parents it, it, and trying to, you know, not overstimulate them, not have them so involved in so many different activities and competing and getting their resumes together when they're 10 years old. Well, I think it's, it, you, know, it, you know, it was hard. I mean, we, we, it's fighting the culture, and it's, a fighting, it's fighting that sort of fantasy of great achievement. You know, they're going to be who they're going to be, and we want them to be bored. We want, because if, if we say, okay, no TV, no devices, no computer, you go find something to do. They actually, Nicholas loves to clear out his closet. He loves to vacuum. vacuum. And Carol, you know, they find things to do. Caroline will go out and back and she'll pick flowers. And, um, but, you know, you have to get through that initial period of the rebellion, of, of their saying, I'm bored, I have nothing to do, and get them into a situation where they can be self-reliant and invent. There's no reason that a child can't do that. We have an older daughter who's 18. Uh, she's a freshman in college. And... We've never had a, 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 a video game in our house. Not that that's anything we strongly resisted, but we just it just never kind of came up, and we certainly didn't promote it. And I think that was one, one helpful way. She was often outside just walking, as her mom liked to do. Or drawing. But what about the pressure from other parents? I mean, you are, you know, very well informed. You, you know, you're very specific about how you, you know, you know what you want to do in terms of raising the children. But isn't there a lot of peer pressure and also parental pressure, your friends, uh, mm-hmm. to 
n- not do this, you know, to have the video games in the house or to have those other distracting kinds of things which don't add to your creativity. You know, I think moms and dads who are at home and, and in this culture right now, you know, there's a lot of, I think people are really very ambivalent about the pressure. I mean, we all want our kids to succeed, but at the same time we realize it's exhausting for them to be doing things all the time and it's exhausting for, for moms and dads to have to be driving everywhere and so I think what, you know, for me, what it is, is I have a few friends who, and we talk about this, we talk about the, the, the conflict, you know, between accomplishment and just being, and how are we going to create these moments of just being and being together, and if you have some supportive friends who are thinking the same way that you do, it becomes easier. I think what you said before, too, I think it's okay to be bored if we want to define it as bored. You don't have to be doing something all the time. Yeah. That's okay. So when your kids say to you, I'm bored, well, you're bored, you, you yeah. know, but you don't have to run out and figure out something interesting, exciting uh, for them to do. Right, right. And also, if you get together with other parents who also turn off the TV, you know, and also say to the kids, no devices, and somehow you can get the kids together or you can get together with that family or those parents, it, it works for everybody because you feel connected, you have good friends. <laughs> And you can sort of be in the shared experience of, 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 of saying, you know, hey, we're going to take a different route now. The culture may be going in one way, but let's, let's experiment with this other way and see what it does for us. And also I think it's, uh, the, just as we spoke about earlier, it's, it, it's starting small. You don't have to make any dramatic, huge, uh, life-altering gestures in one day and, you know, sit down and have the family conference. You just send a little way. So, you know what, today we're not going to watch TV this morning on Saturday morning. But let's just take a walk. We're going to take a walk as a family, something we ha- don't typically do. Yeah, and I think that you know, not watching television, not getting on the computers on the weekend, setting some standards for all of that is really important. What kind of response have you gotten from your book? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's been overwhelming and really so uh, wonderful. And it comes from every direction. I think it's very rich. I say that because Carrie is the brains behind the operation um, and, and, the, and the book. Um, there, you know, each kind of each of the things we've spoken about, the insight, the movement, kind of the five, the five part prescription, the five, the five PP. PP um, people come at it from very different angles. We actually just had a book party, and we we it was remarkable that. Almost uniformly, the people responded. What they responded to was the true connections there. They responded to the, the sense of community and the, the interplay and the intertwining of lives, but all about the true connections, the feeling that these were really friends that you could count on and loyalty. And, you know, we, get, we can get into this a little bit more, but we have a chapter called True Connections, and what that really is just about is just having loving, loyal people in your life. And for Alton and I, that's been very, very important, you know, for getting through a lot of, of situations. And really good things can come through come out of the right relationship, the loving relationship, whether it's creativity or a sense of freedom in your mind, the ability to talk about what, you know, the sort of ugly side or the dark side, all of that, having a forum where you can do that is very important for freedom and actually, ironically, happiness. Carrie, what do you think about, is there a difference between men and women and their ability to, to be able to do this, to make these kinds of connections with people, to be able to express themselves about good things and bad things? Uh, do you think women are e- more able to do that than men, or have you found no differences? You know, I, I always sort of steer away from that, from the, the sort of the gender kind of stereotype. I, you know, in my life, I have known men. You know, my father was a very emotional person who really talked about his feelings a lot. So I've never had the sense that men, 
you know, weren't able to do that. You know, I've always had the sense that I've known a lot of men who can do that and who've been very good friends to me. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, but, but if there is a, a worry about that, there are certainly ways to, for, there are some women who are, are more restricted and some men who are less restricted. I mean, it, it just it depends on the individual. Yeah, it does. And I'm thinking my father was a, a, an attorney, a, you know, a trial attorney, so he was the one who was the outspoken one and the emotional one and the one who cried. My mother was much more reserved. Yeah. But I find in doing therapy or counseling with people, uh, counseling very often that's a complaint of women uh, that their husbands or their partners or you know don't make those kinds of connections so that's why I bring it up I mean I don't know if you've had a different experience Alton well yeah. you know I played a lot of sports and and I think they can take those true connections can be made and maintained even lifelong but they may take a slightly different form I think there probably is less I mean if you want to be a little bit stereotypical, there's probably less verbal communication, but there's a lot of physical communication, a lot of unspoken uh, connectivity and understanding and mutual understanding and empathy that can be given out in other ways. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, the ideal would probably be a combination of both, and and I think that um, depending on where you are, uh, kind of culturally, different parts of the country, people, you can say, may, may think of things a little differently, but... Uh, the bottom line is if you can if you can know yourself, if you can know yourself and have insight into yourself, then you will gravitate toward the people and draw in people with that. I, I think that I've often found that, that because I, I like to talk about things that some people that I might just be playing a uh, pickup game of basketball with, well, actually, I'll just ask them something random, but it's a little bit deeper than they're used to going, and they just completely open up about it. So the vehicle can be different. Women can be talking. Men can be doing sports. It all doesn't have to be the same kind of thing. Right, and you know, and also nonverbal communication is, is communication. You know, it, it really is. It's just an understand, understanding what someone's mode of communication is and trying to be sensitive to that. Well, we have a couple minutes left, so what do we want to leave our listeners with? Well, creative action is very <laughs> important for mental health and happiness. And if you can find anything, anything, you don't have to have creative expertise, you don't have to be trained whether it's throwing a meal together out of whatever's in your fridge, whether it's going down to your basement or cutting up pieces of paper or scraps to make things, to make a quilt, to make a found object sculpture, just engage in a process and see what it does for you. It doesn't have to be beautiful or perfect. And be open and be optimistic about it because it really can make a huge difference in your day-to-day well-being for years to come. I like that. Open and optimistic. Open and optimistic. So do you have a website that we can go to that for more information about the book? And Yes, it's thecreativitycure.com, and uh, it has um, links to everything else that we do, the Facebook and Pinterest and uh, uh, what else? Twitter. Twitter, yes. But uh, there's a lot of information there, and there's some uh, excerpts and a couple of chapters from the book to get uh, – to get excited about it, hopefully. For the 5PP, our five-part prescription, yes. Well, it's been great having you both on the show today. Thank you. Um, Carrie Barron, MD, Alton Barron, MD, and they're the authors of The Creativity Cure, a do-it-yourself prescription for happiness. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so Thank much you for having much. us. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, great conversation. Uh, we're going to say goodbye, and uh, we're going to take a short break, but my next guest is Edward Humes, and he is author of Garbology, Garbology, our dirty love affair with trash and edward humes is a pulitzer prize winner so we're going to find out how does a pulitzer prize winning author get interested in garbage you're listening to the katherine zock show 
on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is a Pulitzer Prize winner, Edward Humes, and his new book is called Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. Um, Edward Humes received a Pulitzer Prize for his newspaper coverage of the military, and he's written for publications like the New York Times, Los Angeles Magazine, Reader's Digest, and the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks, Catherine. Great to have you. So I guess my question is, and I mentioned it actually early in the show that I was going to ask you this, how we're going to start off with how does a Pulitzer Prize-winning author get interested in garbage? <laughs> well, it's the, uh, you know, waste is the biggest thing we make. It's uh, it's a surprisingly uh, ubiquitous, or maybe not so surprisingly ubiquitous uh, product. In fact, it's our biggest product. It's our number one export as a country is our trash. So it's 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 everywhere. It's embedded throughout our daily lives, and it's also uh, uh, kind of at the core of a lot of the big problems we face in the environment, energy, the economy. If you drill down deep enough, what you find is waste. So you know, it's a problem. We have so much garbage. I guess you said 102 tons of garbage in a lifetime each one of us uses. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, but, it's seven pounds a day, so it adds up quick. Yeah, and, and you know, garbage, we t- when you have the word garbage, the connotation is kind of like disgusting. I don't want to talk about garbage. Nobody does. Um, and I think as individuals and as a nation, we don't want to talk about our garbage or our trash. Um, so what how did you become interested in garbage? Okay, you mentioned it's a huge problem, society, environmental. I guess we should get specific about that, and it costs us billions of dollars a year, so that's important, too. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, as a country, as a people, we're living in a way that no uh, prior civilization has ever lived in terms of the amount of waste uh, we create every day. Our trash is, is epic um, compared to... Uh, uh, past cultures and economies, and and it's different. Uh, the biggest category of what we throw away, if you go go out and poke around in a landfill, you'll find that 25% of it is containers 
and packaging, this sort of instant trash that we create, this disposable single-use stuff that, that we pay for every day and then just throw away. Uh, and the problem is that we make it out of incredibly durable materials like plastic that last forever. I mean, it's, it's almost a perverse idea when you think about it, something that is designed to be thrown away right away and yet will last forever and linger in the environment. Uh, and a lot of resources are being thrown away uh, that way because those many of those products that we uh, are, have as disposable uh, single-use items are made out of fossil fuel products. So uh, we're losing a lot that we ought to be uh, putting to, to use more productively. Okay. You say wastefulness is a choice, not an inevitability. Explain that. In other words, we don't have to be doing this. We don't have to be making things out of plastic that last forever and then throwing them in a in a uh, landfill, and and and, uh, and it sits there for years and years. And uh, so, what do we do? I mean, I know in the book you talk about several or many kinds of things that we can do to um, prevent some of this and to produce less garbage. And there are sure. some places, yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's definitely a way back from waste. That's actually the main reason I wanted to write this because it's the one big problem that anyone can do something about and something meaningful and something that isn't just beneficial to the sort of the, this big idea of oh, it's good for the planet, it's good for the environment. It's also good for your household and good for your family. You can actually save money by being less wasteful. I mean, there's a reason why all our grandmoms, you know, <laughs> tell us don't waste your food, waste not whatnot, because that's a good strategy for for living. And we've kind of lost. Uh, lost sight of that and really embedded wastefulness and then created incentives for wastefulness in our daily lives. And, and part of the fun of this book was finding examples of that first and then look at ways that you could um, uh, get around. You have to be kind of a trash detective. We all do. But yeah, I... uh, take, take junk mail. This is, the, this is a great example. Um, it's now over 50% of the U.S. mail is junk mail, stuff that we don't actually want. 85 billion pieces of it, uh, 4 million tons of junk mail uh, last year alone. In fact, one in 100 pounds of stuff going to the landfill is junk mail. And, and that's bad enough, but we're subsidizing it. Every time you or I go and buy a postage stamp and pay first-class rates, we are subsidizing the artificially low rate that junk mailers uh, get. And then we're giving them another subsidy by excusing them from dealing with the consequences of this tidal wave of waste. We, you know, consumers and government uh, taxpayers uh, pay to deal with that waste and haul it away. The creators of it are get off scot-free. So we are basically creating incentives to be wasteful. And you can so find how do we change that? We don't want to create that. incentives to be wasteful, obviously. We, 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 we want to do the opposite. Don't we we? want to do exactly the opposite. How do we do it? Well, I've, one thing would be stop subsidizing junk mail. Uh, another thing would be look at some of our consumer choices. Um, the U.S. is a huge consumer of bottled water that, that, if you buy them one at a time, is incredibly expensive. In fact, you pay more for water than gasoline if you buy <laughs> per ounce if you buy it that way. And the thing is, over about 50% of that product is actually somebody's tap water with a label slapped on it and stuck in a disposable container. Uh, we are blessed in the U.S. with one of the finest, uh, if not the finest, and purest municipal water supplies in the world. We are the envy of the world, and yet this crazy industry of single-use disposable bottles of water has is now a $12 billion annual in- industry, and we are throwing away 60 million disposable bottles a day from just from water. It doesn't even count soda or other things that have single-use containers, and it's, it's sort of crazy triumph of 
of marketing over common sense because such an industry was never even thought of until recently. And we're obsessed with things that appear to be convenient uh, that actually are costing us tremendous amounts of, of resources and money. And it's, and it's just wasteful. And yes, somebody makes money off of it, but most of us have to pay for the consequences of, of that particular consumer choice. Well, I am conscious of it. I want you to know that every time I go into a restaurant and they ask me what kind of water do I want, I always ask for tap water. Well, it's smart because if you ask for bottled water, you're probably getting tap water anyway. That's the scam. <laughs> it's snake oil. Uh, and, and the other problem with plastic waste in particular is the immense amount of it that we lose track of. I mean, it's you, we all think it gets recycled, but most plastic waste doesn't get recycled. It either ends up in the landfill or it gets lost in the shuffle somewhere. It gets blown away. It gets dumped in or... or uh, uh, spilled into waterways and ends up in the ocean, we lose the equivalent of 40 super aircraft carriers a year at sea in terms of the weight of plastic that we lose in the marine environment. It breaks up into small particles uh, and is uh, till it gets down to the size of plankton and is consumed by the small fish that are the basis of the food chain. And it works its way up the food chain towards us. Let's talk about food waste because that's another thing that you mentioned, touched on earlier. But what about food waste? We we waste so much food in this country, and that we have people who go hungry every night or children, uh, babies. Um, But apparently, the food waste is enormous, and you you talk about that in the book. um, And and I was really shocked. And so, tell us about that, because yeah, well, that's that's thankfully that's gotten a, a lot of attention. There's been some excellent journalism done on this, but if you look at the basic um, statistics, about 25% of our food supply gets wasted in one way or another. If you look at dairy, it's even higher. Almost a third of milk, for instance, gets disposed of uh, before it can nourish anyone, and, and mostly because um, the expiration date has lapsed before it even gets sold. So this you know, gets thrown away off the supermarket shelves. And oftentimes, it's actually perfectly good. It's just that that date, the buy-sale date, has passed. So because of inefficiencies in the system, because of the sort of uh, century-old uh, pasteurization technology that we still use, uh, a lot of uh, potential nourishment gets lost. And, and you see that over and over again with all kinds of food stuff. I went out to the most uh, the largest landfill in the country it's in the Los Angeles area I call it garbage mountain because it's a 500 foot tall plateau of of waste uh and you see truck after truck coming in and dumping food produce that's still good um things that uh couldn't be sold or or it was just more convenient to get rid of that way i mean tons and tons of food thrown away um that, that is not nourishing anyone. It isn't even being composted. It's just getting buried uh, along with the rest of our, our trash, it went, whereas just, you could certainly do something more productive with it, even if it was just to compost it to make soil. Yeah, I was, that was uh, I was going to ask you. What's the solution for that so that we're not wasting all of this food? I mean, can, what can we as individuals do? And then I guess the second question is, what can we as a society do? Well, uh, the... It has to be. There's no. There's no silver bullet. <laughs> and we've sort of made recycling as the holy grail, um, and and really that is uh, just a partial solution at best. First of all, it doesn't reduce the amount of waste we make. <laughs> it just diverts it to something else. 
And only a small percentage of what we actually can recycle does get recycled. So it's a very inefficient solution. It's better than nothing. We need to do it. But the real solution is to find ways to make uh, less waste, whether it's food or plastics or paper. Uh, we have an ex- excess of packaging. We have an excess of processed food, which is highly packaged in, uh, you know, envelopes inside of boxes wrapped in plastic kind of food. Whereas, you know, in the past, we tended to have uh, food that wasn't packaged. And you can still buy it that way. You can actually get fresh stuff. <laughs> you can buy in bulk. You can go to a supermarket that has bins of cereal uh, that you put in your own container instead of boxes that you have to throw away and so forth. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways to go about our daily lives and have all the things that we have now, but to do it in a, a less wasteful way. And the, and the funny unintended consequence is if you, it turns out if you buy the healthier alternatives of food, oftentimes you get less packaging and less waste. Yeah, I think that's uh, true. The healthy foods usually aren't, or they're not processed foods. They are just the vegetables that aren't in a package and you can just buy them in bulk. That That's really true. I think in the, and I want you to discuss this because I found this, that the chapter uh, well, the name of the chapter was Decadence Now, but the, the Garbage Study product, Project, which was born in 1973, talk to tell us about that. Well, this is a project at the University of Arizona, um, uh, headed up by a, an, an archaeologist by the name of Bill Rafchi, and he decided to try and turn his skill set, the science of studying ancient civilizations, which, if you know anything about archaeology, you know what they often do is sort through uh, people's ancient people's trash, <laughs> because that's a great way to find out about how people lived, what they ate, uh, you know, what they possessed that got broken and thrown away. In fact, it's a more reliable way of figuring out a people than looking at their official histories, because, you know, the, the winner of the war always writes the history, and you never get the other side of the story. But trash doesn't lie. You get everybody's story that way. Uh, and he thought, wow, you know, maybe I can look at today's uh, society in America and study our trash today instead of waiting for some archaeologist 10,000 years from now to do it. I'm going to do it now and see what I can learn. Uh, and he, he learned a lot. He learned it, first of all, that landfills don't work the way we thought they did, that things didn't break down and, and decompose inside them nearly as fast. He'd find things like, you know, 40-year-old hot dogs that looked fresh and bowls of guacamole that were still green and <laughs> been there for years. And it wasn't, things weren't breaking down the way we thought. And then he learned, if you survey people about their habits and then look at their trash, you find out people really don't know what they're throwing away. They don't know what they're consuming. Um, great example was, oh, yes, uh, we hardly drink any beer at all in our household. And then you can look at the trash and you see these cases of beer bottles and there. People vastly underestimated their alcohol consumption, vastly overestimated their healthy food consumption. You'd think they'd have tons of cottage cheese containers in their trash, but actually what they found were potato chip bags. You know, yeah, well, and that's <laughs> not surprising because I think when it comes to those kind of, you know, what you drink and what, uh, you're not going to. Most people don't admit to how much alcohol they drink, and yes, they say they drink, eat more cottage cheese and dietary products, and they really well, do. Well, that extended to everything they consume. Those are just sort of the high where it was most dramatic. But basically, people were rather unaware of how much waste they were creating. Uh, and this uh, really interesting thing is how fast things that we spend good money on end up in the trash. A lot of purchase, a lot of things, not just the containers and packaging, but 
you know, everything was, was becoming more and more disposable over the years. And you can see that. I mean, I, you know, in the 1960s, every neighborhood had a, you know, a radio and TV repair shop. If your television broke, you'd go get it fixed. And that made economic sense. And now what makes economic sense? The way things uh, are, you, you throw it away and you get a new one because that seems to be the cheapest way to go. That's a design choice. That's waste by choice. But one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that any society, you meant, I guess you mentioned the Roman Empire, any society that, you know, was the most, was powerful, uh, or any empire, uh, tended to do this. They, they had a lot of waste and, and they, you know, a lot they of... squandered their wealth. squandered their stuff <laughs> and then they went down the tubes and they really weren't, or they weren't able to actually... Um, begin to, you know, not do that or uh, to, when they were starting to, you know, not be so powerful and the, the, the um, like the Holy Roman Empire was ending and, and wasn't able to save themselves, I guess is what I'm saying. So are we going to be well, an the exception? Pa- the historical pattern, was, and this is something that the Garbage Project was, look, was looking at and Bill Refty talked about to me, um, that past civilizations, whether it's the Eastern Islanders or the Romans or whoever, um, uh, when they finally realized it was a bad idea to be so wasteful and throw away their valuable resources and 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 forget the idea that that thriftiness is a is a good value, uh, by the time they realized that they were in decline and they madly started to try and conserve and 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 use their resources um, uh, more w- wisely, but by then it was too late for them. Their civilizations were falling, and so. Uh, uh, Rafji wanted to see if he could look at our trash and figure out where we were on that um, uh, spectrum. Where, where had we, <laughs> where we passed the point where it appeared that a civilization is in decline, and and, and uh, you know, we, we, no matter how hard we try, it was too late to uh, uh, conserve our ways way back to uh, prosperity. And uh, so. Uh, he did not resolve that question that we were right on the border and he saw some signs of encouragement that, you know, we were thinking more about, um, being less wasteful, uh, uh, but we hadn't made a lot of progress yet. So uh, he, he considered the question still open. <laughs> right, so the jury's still out on that, whether we're going to go the down the tubes or whether we can salvage ourselves. But one but, of the other know, things, cause we don't have that much more time, but I want to talk about, cause there, using garbage to um, be able to gauge all sorts of contemporary behaviors, um, which I found interesting. Like you can, by looking, as you say, by looking at our civilization through our garbage, uh, like archaeologists do with ancient civilizations, we can find a whole lot about ourselves in terms of how we behave. And uh, some of the, I found it very interesting. One of the things with, had to do with birth control, um, Oh yeah. Well, well, one of the things if you go through uh, the trash uh, uh, as a garbologist, uh, Rasti found that the way, um, based upon the containers that birth control uh, pills came in, that pe- people were uh, clearly not using it correctly efficiently, <laughs> and uh, might explain uh, a, a, a higher than expected failure rate for birth uh, control medications. Because because of the design of this this one single-use plastic packaging that it came in, it was supposed to dispense the pills. People weren't understanding how to uh, um, use it correctly. So, uh, yeah, he found all kinds of quirky things like so that. So that could explain maybe the birth rate in one town or another or one city or one 
demographic area, which is interesting. And then uh, another thing was the presence of condom wrappers in the trash, which was interesting. Um, after the, what was it, two years, you say, after the AIDS hit the news, and people really took it seriously and were using condoms. For yeah, the, yeah, yeah, you could measure measure that. You could also, <laughs> there was also some other oddities, uh, you know, if you if you gave people a bigger trash can, they'd find a way to fill it. <laughs> you theorize one way to reduce our waste would just be to give people smaller trash cans. Uh, but apparently waste always um, uh, increases to fill its container. And then uh, he had other, other little rules he developed for... Uh, and to understand people's trash. Um, but garbology is a serious thing now. I mean, it, apparently it's in the, uh, the, the, there's a definition of it in the Oxford English Dictionary. I mean, it's really, it's taken seriously. The study of, and I'm going to give the definition, the study of a community or culture by analyzing its waste. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I chose it for the title of my book. Because, <laughs> I like it. You know, it's just a great, I would call them garbalos or the difference. You know, San Francisco has artists in residence at their dump, and they have their charges, and people compete for this, uh, to make art out of whatever people are throwing away, and to actually find the tools to make their art out of the dump, too. And it's amazing. I mean, nothing illustrates more uh, the incredible value of the stuff we're throwing away that we call trash has tremendous value. Uh, you know, this one woman who, who does sewing arts, soft sculptures, was just beside herself. How am I going to do my work? I can't use my own sewing materials or anything. Within a week, these two amazing fully stocked sewing kits had shown up in the trash. You know, somebody's grandmom had died, <laughs> and then people had just scooped up their treasures, and now they were trash. They were just thrown away. And this is stuff that you, you can see in the flow of material that comes through there, it has incredible value that instead of throwing away, other people could be using and reusing and, uh, and not wasting. And, and, and when we start thinking of what we throw away, not as, as trash, but as, as material, not as waste management, but material management, then you start to realize, hey, you know, we don't need to be throwing away half the things we're throwing, that there is something we can be doing with this, whether it's giving it to someone to reuse or making energy out of uh, out of our waste or composting it instead of burying it in landfills and there's endless strategies we could be employing that would not only solve our trash problem but actually give something back that we're losing now and but we and, need to be creative about i guess one of the things that or one of the messages from your book is you know, we need to be creative about how we utilize our waste and i, I think at the end of the book you describe I mean, we have to start with children and sort of, you know, getting them into thinking in a different way about waste, and apparently we're beginning to do that. Yeah, I think uh, um, in, in, there's, there's communities uh, throughout the world, and certainly in, in America, that are, are embracing this idea of, of uh, waste reduction as a way of, you know, in hard times of really sort of helping out our economy and... and uh, reclaiming uh, things that uh, that have value that we're just throwing away now, and, and it, it's it's a small but growing trend. Businesses too have seen the value in waste reduction. Uh, even large uh, corporations that don't have a particularly great reputation for good works, like uh, Walmart, has reduced their waste by going to landfills like eighty percent. Um, because they're composting and then they're selling the compost in their stores instead of throwing the food away and they're recycling more and 
uh, they end up uh, padding their bottom line. So there's an economic incentive for them to to reduce packaging and and therefore reduce their shipping costs and fuel expenses. And the, the benefits that flow from reducing waste actually turn out to be pretty substantial. And were there any other examples besides Walmart? Are there any other countries that are doing it better than we? Oh, yeah. Well, mo- almost every other developed country does it better than we. we. We are the landfill kings and the waste leaders. We make 7.1 pounds per person per day in America on average. The uh, Japanese, it's about 2.5 pounds. Um, Germany sends nothing to landfills. They recycle 66% of their waste, which is phenomenal. It's about 24% in the U.S., our recycling rate. And then they make energy out of the rest. They don't bury it in landfills. They have clean uh, burning uh, generating stations in which uh, trash is used to make electricity and heat. Uh, this is a, a very popular European solution. Denmark uh, <laughs> worked its way to energy independence. They are a net exporter of energy now, primarily because of, of uh, waste to energy and wind. Uh, uh, it's pretty amazing. And local communities love having these facilities there. They have one that's under construction now that's going to be a community ski park and buried under the slope is this waste to energy plant. Uh, it's the coolest thing. And, and instead of w- the typical reaction you get in the U.S., which is, oh, we don't want that in our neighborhood. Uh, yeah, ours is um, not in my backyard. I'm sorry? I said our typical response is not in my backyard. Uh, in I don't my want backyard. it here. It they sounds like a good making... idea, but not in my backyard. They say trash is, is a local problem. We should solve it locally. Instead of, and so they build these small little neighborhood plants to take care of it, and they also use it to make heat, to heat their homes. So you get electricity and heat out of it. Uh, and it turns out to be a pretty good solution. And because of new uh, clean technology, it's actually the irony of it is in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, these waste energy plants are better for the environment than landfills, which emit methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. So we have lots of good examples and, and really no excuses for not kind of changing the way we think about garbage and what we do with it, um, as, you know, not just within our country, but as you said, there are lots of examples around the world, uh, Denmark, Germany. Um, we have to say goodbye. Um, I want to obviously mention the book one more time, Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, Edward Humes, Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And we can go to your website, edwardhumes.com. Yes, or uh, Garbology on Facebook has a page, too, and it's a great place to share your ideas about reducing waste. Okay, be creative. Great having you on the show this morning. It's been my pleasure, Catherine. Yep. Anytime. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday live from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. Um, hope you had a good morning. Have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.